0: Well, arguably, you know, the most influential African theologian of all time is named Augustine of Hippo, and he lived, he lived in the fourth century and, and wrote a monumental book that continues to speak into our times today, and the name of the book is called City of God. And in it, you know, Augustine shares how every believer in Jesus is effectively living in two cities at the same time. See first all or first off, you know, we all live in the city of man. For Augustine, this was the Roman Empire. For Christians throughout history, it's been various places throughout the ages. For us, for example, our city of man is Tampa, Florida. However, at the same time, we are members of another city, a heavenly city, what Augustine called the city of God. And Augustine said, he said, he said, the moment that you become born again, you get dual citizenship. See, you become a citizen of the city of God while you are still a citizen of your earthly city. Right, the question then remains for us this morning, how do we live in between the tension, really, of the city of God and the city of man, especially when those two cultures and realities may contradict one another? Right, We're going to tackle that question today, and I'm excited to do it as we continue here in our theme of, of, of loving of, of, of loving the city this morning. We're in this series here at Mission Hill, The Summer of Love, and I am so honored, uh, you know, just to be invited to speak on this topic. It is one that, as Pastor Andrew shared, I've been wrestling with quite a bit over the past few years, as I am part of a team that is, that is planting a new church right in the heart of our city, right in downtown Tampa. Right, so, so as we talk about this important question today, I want to share, you know, not from even my personal reflections because none of us want to hear that, okay? I want to share from the Word of God, right, the authoritative inspired Word of God because the Bible has a lot to say to us about how to relate to the city of man, Okay, and I want to invite you you, you to turn, if you have a Bible, you can turn to the the Old Testament book of of Jeremiah. We're going to look at the words of Jeremiah the prophet who wrote around 600 B.C., some 2,600 years ago, but as you will soon see, his times were quite a bit like our own. And so, so, Jeremiah chapter 29, we're actually going to read this morning the entire passage that I plan to speak from in Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 1 through 14, and if you don't have a Bible, you can follow along on the screen as well. And at this time, I actually also want to, to ask you, if you're physically able, if you would just stand with me for the reading of God's Word this morning, just as a sign of our reverence and awe for what we believe to be God's Word to us this morning. All right, Jeremiah chapter 29, starting in verse 1. It says, this is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the remaining exiled elders, the priests, the prophets, and all the people Nebuchadnezzar had deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. See, this was after King Jeconiah, the queen mother, the court officials, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen, and the metalsmiths had left Jerusalem. He sent the letter with, with Elisa, the son of Shaphan, and, and Gemariah's, you know, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. I'm trying, guys. All right, the letter stated, verse 4, this is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel, says to all the exiles I deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. Verse 5, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Find wives for yourselves and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters to men in marriage so that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease. Pursue the well-being of the city I have deported you to. Pray to the Lord on its behalf. For when it thrives, you will thrive. For this is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel, says. Don't let your prophets who are among you and your diviners deceive you. And don't listen to the dreams you elicit from them. For they are prophesying falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them. This is the Lord's declaration. For this is what the Lord says. When 70 years for Babylon are complete, I will attend to you and will confirm my promise concerning you to restore you to this place. Verse 11. For I know the plans I have. For you. This is the Lord's declaration. Plans for your well being, not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. You will call to me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you. This is the Lord's declaration, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and places where I banish you. This, again, is the Lord's declaration. I will restore you to the place from which I deported you. Well Father, we do thank you for your word this morning, and I, Lord, I, Lord I thank you that the same Holy Spirit who inspired these words to Jeremiah 2,600 years ago would, would impress them upon our heart as we talk about this issue of loving our city. God. We thank you for wisdom today in Jesus name. Amen. And amen. You could be seated. You know, Jeremiah, he writes this letter in 597 B.C. to Jewish exiles who have, who have been deported from their homeland in Jerusalem some 900 miles away to Babylon, what is today Iraq. I believe we have a map, you know, just to show you like the, like the image or perspective of the, um, of the Israelites who, who, who had to travel some, some 900 miles, which to us may not sound too crazy. 900 miles is the distance from Tampa to Washington, D.C. It may take you 15 hours or so, but remember, for, for 2600 B.C. Israelites without Teslas or electric scooters, this would have been a four-month journey. All right, the nation of Israel, which which was and is God's chosen people, had recently you know when jeremiah writes this had fallen to the babylonian empire which was the strongest empire at that time and, and many of god's chosen people the nation of israel had been been carried off into exile right they were now after they traveled those 900 miles they were living in a culture that was extremely hostile to their own okay babylon was a pagan The city was filled with idols and false gods, right? It was a wicked and ruthless empire. If you remember from history class, man, all human empires are full of pride and murder and treason and deceit, right? And then then God's people, the Israelites, finally get there in Babylon, and they turn to each other, and they say, Toto, I don't think we're in Kansas anymore, Right, it is the, what I want to call the familiar problem of exile, right? right because the truth is, friends, the stark reality is that God's people, us, we, we live in exile in this sin-stricken, fallen world. Our cities have just gone by different names through the years, For Jeremiah's readers, it was Israel and and Babylon. For Augustine, it was the Roman Empire and the city of God, heaven. For us, it is Tampa and the place that we all long to be with Jesus for all eternity. Right? But something I want to point out as we begin our conversation about exile this morning is that we or they, for example, we are not here in the city that you live in, in the neighborhood you live in. We are not here by accident. So God puts you where you live with the neighbors that you have that you wave at on a daily basis. Just like the exiles in Babylon, God has strategically placed you there. God's sovereign hand is involved in our exile. Right? Did you catch that in verse 4? Right, the thing is, is that the Babylonian Empire didn't thwart God's plan by conquering the nation of Israel and deporting a bunch of Jewish people to Babylon. No, No, God was over it all. Look at verse 4 you know, God takes the credit for their exile. He says, this is what the Lord of armies, which is like a a subtle reminder that he is the all-powerful God of the universe, not Babylon. This is what the God of Israel says to all the exiles, I deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. The first thing Jeremiah wants his readers to understand is this, God puts you there. In the city of man, this isn't an accident. This was intentional, right? Right. Paul, if you remember in, in, in 1 Corinthians, he compares our existence in this world to that of ambassadors, right? That's the imagery to describe who we, if you're a Christian, you're a believer like me, we are, we are living, yes, in this earthly space and place, but our home is elsewhere. We belong with God in heaven where we will one day reside forever, Right, but if you didn't know it, just like the Jews who woke up in Babylon, we are living in exile, friends. We are living in the city of man. So, so what do we do now? Okay, that's the question we're going to talk about this morning. Because all throughout history, God's people have had a few different ways that they have related to the city of man. And I want to talk about this for just a moment. Okay, these like, like different ways or maybe several different options we can relate to the city around us are all represented in a really good book on the topic. It was written in the, in the 20th century by a man named Richard Niebuhr, and it's, it's called Christ and Culture. It asked the question, how are Christians to relate to the culture of the cities around them? Okay, he gives us a few options. All right, the first option is, is what, you know, you know, Niebuhr calls Christ against culture. And, and Christ against culture is just what it sounds like. Like it's, it's boycotting everything and anyone who opposes us. It's seeking to escape the city and, you know, maybe live in a little Christian sub-community or enclave, essentially turning our backs on the pagans and leaving them in our dust, right? And you could see this in, in some historic, you know, Christian movements, like maybe monasticism, monastic communities, for example, Right? Right. They were where a bunch of, you know, Christians would set up a little commune outside the city and live amongst themselves and have relatively no interaction with the city of man. Right? That's one option. And more modern example of this, you know, maybe I was I was I was thinking this week, you know, it may be seen in in, in some Christians who have been overzealous in trying to escape this life. and and predict the return of Christ. You remember the book, 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming Back in in 1988, right? It's like, just hold on a little bit longer, and then we're all out of here. Right, this option, though, Christ against culture, it's actually mentioned or alluded to right in Jeremiah 29. If you remember, as we read, Um, In verses 8 and 9, Jeremiah warns the people. He says, do not listen to your false prophets and those who would try and deceive you into thinking that your exile was only temporary. Okay, what he's talking about is just one chapter before. In Jeremiah chapter 28, there's this false prophet named Hananiah. He he prophesies and says, thus saith the Lord, in two years God will break the yoke of Babylon and you will come back. The only problem was God never said that. Okay, and Jeremiah is going to go on and speak the truth on behalf of God and tell them, guys, you're going to be here a while, so settle down. Stop trying to run from the city. Right, that's the first option, Christ against culture. The second option presented in the book is, um, is, called, is called Christ of culture. And this is when Christians assimilate into the surrounding culture and lose any distinctiveness from it. Right, this was actually the Babylonian strategy, and it was brilliant. Okay? When, when Babylon captured a city, they didn't enslave the people or banish the people. What they would try to do is assimilate them into their own culture. Right? That way, the Jews would lose any of their cultural distinctiveness and just become a Babylonian. In our day today, this is known as like a lukewarm Christian or a casual Christian or a nominal Christian. It's when there's, there's no visible difference between your life and the life of those who don't claim to follow Jesus. See, this is when, you know, Christ of culture, this is when the lines are blurred between the Christian sexual ethic and the American sexual revolution. This is when the lines are blurred between the Bible and the Constitution, when the lines are blurred between living your life for the American dream and living your life for the kingdom of God. See, Christ of culture, guys, is when we lose our saltiness, when we hide our light. And my fear is this, all right, just from from being around the church as long as I have, my fear is that this may describe some of you in this room. So you you have lost your saltiness. You might come to church and you might think of yourself as a follower of Jesus, but you are more of the city of man rather than just living in the city of man. See, people at your job or your school or your friends, they don't even know that that you follow Jesus. You've just assimilated into the American culture. Now, if you can't tell, um, I do not think any of these first two options are any good. All right, the third option is what, you know, we're going to see even Jeremiah extort the Jewish people or exhort the Jewish people with. Uh, Niebuhr calls this one christ above culture. This is the third option. He has a couple of variations on it as well, but it isn't simply running from the city of man, which is Christ against culture, nor is it blending into the city of man, which is Christ of culture, but it is where you you live in the city and yet you are distinct from it. You seek to see Jesus transform the culture from the inside out. Okay, if you want a great example of this, and we don't have time to go into it, just read the book of Daniel. Okay, it's like a little assigned reading this week. We, Daniel was actually in Babylon as a Jewish exile. He probably read this letter from Jeremiah. But Daniel's life was, was how we are to live in the city and be for the city and yet be distinct from it. Okay, I want to look, though, I want to look a little closer at, what, at, at how Jeremiah calls them and, and how he calls us to be in the city. And I'm going to call this the faithful presence of exiles, Okay, remember the commands you know Jeremiah or or Jeremiah gives. In verse five, he says, he says, build houses and plant gardens. Right, those things take a while. In verse six, he says, find wives, have families, multiply in Babylon. Verse 7 in, in, instructs them to pursue the well-being of the city. And the word for well-being or the peace of the city is the Hebrew word shalom, which, which, which doesn't just mean the absence of, of, of conflict. What shalom refers to is this all-encompassing human flourishing in every dimension, socially, economically, physically, spiritually. He says, seek the shalom of Babylon. And then verse 7 tells them to pray for the city. For when Babylon thrives, you remember he says you will thrive too. Right to which in Jeremiah's original readers, if you will play along with me for a minute, I think that they heard somebody read this letter and they said, "Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Excuse me. Like can you read that sentence over again?" He's he's saying to pray for Babylon to, to seek the well-being of Babylon? Are you serious, guys, right now? Babylon is evil. Like, Babylon is a wicked city. They just conquered us, right? Right. They are a bunch of pagans. We don't want to plant a tree here, Jeremiah. We want to run as fast and as far as we can from wicked, terrible Babylon. Man, do you guys see the implications this has for us in how we are to relate to the city? And God has sovereignly placed us here and arranged for me and you to live in the city just like he sent the Israelites to live in Babylon and we are to seek the well-being of the city. We are to be for Tampa, not against it. So how do we practically do this? Okay, one way is by starting churches. Right, because every city, as, um, as I talked about, every city is, is really two cities. You have the city of man, and then you have the city of, of God. And the church is this little mini city in the city, or, or rather in our city, it's many mini cities in the city. A, a mini city in Temple Terrace, and a mini city in Channelside, and a, and a mini city in, in Carrollwood, and in, in town and country. We are in the city, guys. And the reason we are starting, me and this team, we are starting a church in the channel side area of our city is because we want to pursue the well-being of our city. We want to love our city. And as my pastor says, Willie Rice, he says, when you plant a biblical, missional, gospel church that preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ, you end up impacting everything that is important in the kingdom of God. Man, when a church is, this is what he says, when a church is what a church ought to be, orphans get adopted, widows get cared for, the sick are prayed over, the poor are served, the lost are evangelized, the saved are discipled, the children are educated, injustice is confronted, and Jesus Christ is magnified. When a gospel church is planted, the kingdom of God grows. Man, this is why this past, you know, March, I... I joined with a group of about 25 other people who who make up our church planting team to start a new church in the channel side area of downtown Tampa. Many of them, you know, several of them are actually here today. If you guys would just stand really quick again. I know they may have seen you once. Yeah, we have some of them here today with us. All right, you guys can be seated now. Um, if you guys have been to the Channel Side area, which is really Channel District, you know, Water Street, like the area surrounding Amelie Arita, um, if you've been down there, you know it is just like transforming on a daily basis. There are high rises going up and office towers and, and, and residences seemingly every day. Okay, and if you've been around Tampa long enough, you know 15 years ago, it was pretty much a bunch of parking lots and it was a place you didn't really go after it was dark. But today, in just the 1.5 square miles around Emily Arena, there are 35,000 people who live there. Right? And my wife, we've been living down there for a year now, and, and you could walk to everything. You could walk to the grocery store, restaurants, social activities, Sparkman Wharf. You could walk to anything that you want except a church. Okay, and we want to try and change that. That's why we are planting a church to join in the transformation of this city and to see the gospel of Jesus spiritually transform the people who live there. And we want to be right there in the midst of the city. A lot of people asked me originally when we, when we told them this idea of planting a church right down there. They said, why would you plant a church right in downtown? We want to be right in the midst of the city because we don't run from the city. We seek the transformation of it from the inside out. And so yeah, we've been meeting together since March. Actually next, you know, next month in August, mid-August, we are planning on, on launching weekly services uh, right in the channel side area of downtown. Now, now whether you are you are here and you are helping plant a new church in downtown Tampa or you are in an existing church like this one, okay? I want to give you a few really really practical handles from our text of how you can love your city, okay. I'm going to give you you, you three things here. Okay, number one is to plant yourself in the city. <laughs> you know, when I got into church planting, you know, my wife Shay, she decided to get into actual planting. Um, and it has gone, you know, good at some times and not good in other times. But, you know, we live in an apartment in downtown, and so we don't have a big garden, but we do have a plant table with live plants on the inside of it, believe it or not, okay? Now, now one thing that I know about gardening, which is not much, it actually may be the only thing that I know about gardening, but the only thing that I know is this, is that, is that plants have, have, have root systems to them. Okay, and whether you're, you're talking about a, a few plants like in a garden close to each other or a forest full of, of, of trees, for example, their roots go down deep and oftentimes even intertwine. Friend, that is what I think Jeremiah is telling the Israelites to do in, in living in, in Babylon and the Christians now in Tampa today is, man, we are to put down roots. We are to plant ourselves in the city, to live here and to love it here and to to intertwine, if you will, with the people of the city. Right? Don't despair over the city of man. Seek to love the people in the city that God has placed all around you, all of them. Okay, whether they look like you, have the same skin color as you, vote like you, believe like you, have the same sexual ethic as you or not, plant yourself here. Okay, one way we talk about or have talked about putting down roots in the city is by looking at three strategic places that God has placed all of us in, okay? All right, the first place is your home or the neighborhood you live in, okay? God has planted, like each of you, in a specific neighborhood or a specific home or a specific apartment complex where you live. Here's the functional question for this one, okay? Do you know your neighbors? Right? Do you know the people who live across from you in your apartment complex or your neighborhood? Because you can't love the city and the people in your city if you don't know them. So people at home. What about the people at your work? The second place we talk about putting down roots is at your work. Okay? A lot of us may be back in the office, you know, by now. You may be walking by people every day who are, are created in the image of God. People of your city. God has placed you there intentionally? How are you planting yourself, putting down roots in your work context, all right? The third place we talk about is literally called a third place, okay? It's a place that isn't your home or it isn't your work, but it's a place maybe you go to at like regular intervals during the week, maybe your favorite coffee shop or the gym you go to and you see the same people time and time again. So God has planted you there Okay, I want all of us, I know this is really simple, but I want all of us to just take a minute and realize that God has sent you there, wherever you're there may be, to put down roots next to the people of our city, to know them and seek to understand them and learn about and identify ways you can love them. Plant yourself in the city. Another Like practical way I think we can have a faithful presence in the city is to pursue the shalom or the well-being of the city. You know, know, one of the values of our church is, is transformative work, okay? What we mean by that is that, you know, we want to help people think differently about their day job. Okay, you don't exist and work, like, just so you can make a comfortable salary and have a nice house and maybe retire one day with a boat. Listen, all that would be great, all right? But, but you exist to do transformative work in the world. Like, 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 like transformative work is, is good work that brings glory to God and serves other people. Okay, and the main way you do this is, is through your day job, your vocation, like the place God has put you in for 40 plus hours a week, right? right? Being a Christian, friends, should come out in your work. Like, like at the minimum, you know, being a Christian should change why you work, how you work, and how you see your work. All right, first off, you know, why we work, which is, which is not for ourselves only. We work for the good of other people, for our families and the people who we, who we seek to benefit from what we do every single day, right? It should change how we work. You know, being a Christian should mean you work with character and honesty and integrity and values and virtues. We don't steal and cheat and step on people like people often do in the workplace, Man, and then it should change how we see our work. Guys, we see our work as a mission field that God has placed us in, and, right, That's the first place for us to pursue shalom, but also another way, you know, we can pursue shalom is through ministries of mercy and justice and outreach and local missions. Man, for, for like a long time, I think the you know, we've oftentimes seen serving in the community, like reserved for just a few select Christians in the missions department who have extra time on their hands, but that's not, that's not the thing. See, I, I firmly believe that every, every Christian believer should be looking for ways to be involved in the community, to be the hands and feet of Jesus where they live, yeah, 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 that's something we've been working hard to do as a church plan is identify the needs all around us, even in the channel district, and, and opportunities for us to serve the less fortunate in our community. You know, the Bible talks about, like especially four groups of people who are, are oftentimes overlooked and neglected. It's actually called the, the quartet of the vulnerable. It's, it's orphans, and widows, and the poor, and immigrants. Man, man, God has a special heart for those four groups of people. How do you, how do we as a church work for the well-being of those who are oftentimes overlooked and neglected? Okay, and then lastly, I want to emphasize that the greatest good any of us can do in our city is by sharing the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ with the people of our city. And ultimately, why we get to know people, yes, we want to love them, we want to, we want to understand, but we also want to look for opportunities to share the truth of the saving grace of Jesus Christ with those who may not know him in Babylon. So at the end of the day, he's the only one who can bring total, complete shalom to anybody. Which kind of leads, leads to my third application for us. How do we pursue the well-being of our city Okay, and that's to pray for the city. How often are you praying for your city? How often are you praying for the leaders of your city, right, and the least of your city and the lost in your city? And honestly, I am personally convicted at this point. I've, I actually shared with our, our church planting team last week you know, this is the thing about preaching, okay? If you ever stand up here to preach, you better be trying to live out. You better at least be trying to live out what you're preaching, okay? And I'll admit, I have fallen more and more into prayerlessness for our city lately. You know, you know back in March, when we started talking about planting a church, we were like, I don't know how to do this, God. We need you to work. Only you can, can build a church here. Only you can save a city. God, we need you, you to move Man, however, as I've often experienced in my Christian life, sometimes if I was to be honest, my prayer life ebbs and flows. Sometimes I find myself relying more on my own efforts than on God's spirit. But man, I want to call all of us to prayer for our city this morning. Man, because if the city of man, get this, if the city of man is ever going to become the city of God, which is what Jesus told us to pray for, thy kingdom come, if that's ever going to happen, man, we need a move of God in our city. Will you pray with me now? We're not done. I have more to say, okay? Okay, will you pray with me for a second? Well, Father, we do just ask you to move in our um, in our city. Father, we pray for revival. We pray for awakening. Lord, we pray for your spirit to move from Temple Terrace to Channel Side to Clearwater and St. Pete and Tarpon Springs. Father, we ask for a move of your spirit in our time, God, and, and in our city. God, would you use us? Lord, use us if you can. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And make it a practice, guys, to pray for the flourishing of our city. Okay, I want to close our, our time together today, you know, looking at the, at the final few verses Jeremiah writes. You know, we have seen so far how the Israelites experienced, like, the familiar problem of exile, and then how, how Jeremiah instructed them to have a faithful presence as exiles, but now I want to turn our attention to the future promise for exiles. Okay, read with me again on the screens. We're going to have it in Jeremiah chapter 29, verses, verses 10 through 14. Let me, rem- let me remind you what it says. For this is what the Lord says, "'When 70 years for Babylon are complete, I will attend to you and will confirm my promise concerning you to restore you to this place.'" For I know the plans I have for you. This is the Lord's declaration. Plans for your well-being, not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. You will call to me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you. This is the Lord's declaration. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and places where I banish you This is the Lord's declaration. I will restore you to the place from which I deported you. You know, he mentions in there like like 70 years, and the 70 years that the Lord tells them that they will be in exile can refer to one of two things. Okay, first off is that 70 years was historically just about the number of years that the… that that ancient Babylon reigned over Jerusalem. It was actually, it was 66 years, scholars say, from the time Nebuchadnezzar ascended to the throne in 605 B.C. until the fall of Babylon to the Persian Empire in 539 B.C. Right, that's one way to look at it. Another way to look at it is that 70 years in the Bible often refers to, generally speaking, a human lifetime. And so which one is it? Okay, I think the answer is yes, all right, because Scripture, you know, Scripture many times has a double meaning. I think for Jeremiah's original audience, yes, it did mean a literal 70 years, they would be in exile, but I think 70 years also refers to us as well in our lifetime, because the truth is, friends, as long as we live in this world, you are living in Babylon. However, God gives us a future promise to hold on to beyond these 70 years. And the promise is complete restoration, hope. a a prosperous future, that that one day God will gather believers from all of the nations of the earth and bring them into his land where they will live in the city of God for all eternity. And guys, you might be here, and you might be a Christian living in America right now like the Israelites in Babylon, and you may look around at a culture that has turned its back on God, and you you may be in despair this morning. Friends, there is hope. Especially, I mean, imagine for the original readers, Like, hope seemed lost, all right? For the Israelites in Babylon who were deported from their land, the place where they met with God, where they communed with God, was Solomon's temple. And you know what was destroyed in the Babylonian uh, exile? Solomon's temple, right? That was how they sought and found God. Now the temple was no more. How would humanity ever get into the presence of God again? Right, and the answer and that hope, his name is Jesus. Man, the future promise for exiles like you and me is only made possible by the God who came down and went into exile for us. See, one of my favorite pastors, his name's, his name's Tim Keller. He says this about Jesus. He says, Jesus was thrown out of the city of God so you and I could be brought in. Isn't that good news? Friends, friends, this is the gospel, right? right? This is the gospel, is that God saw us exiled from his presence because of our willful sin and rebellion and disobedience against him. Right, and then out of love, God sent his only son to leave his place in heaven and step on foreign soil to live among us. Jesus lived a perfectly obedient life, something we could never do. He did in our place. And then even though he was sinless, he paid for our sins on the cross and he resurrected to offer every last one of you forgiveness and eternal life. See, look at what the author of Hebrews says about Jesus in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 12 and 14. He says, Therefore, Jesus also, he suffered outside the gate, the gate of the city, so that he might sanctify the people by his own blood. For we do not have an enduring city here, friends. Instead, we seek the one to come. Jesus yeah, here's another quote from uh, Tim Keller. He says, Jesus lost the city that was so we could become citizens of the city that is to come and that makes us salt and light in the city that is. Now, it is up to you if if you've never responded to Jesus' offer of, of, of dual citizenship, you may be here today and you may have never entered into the city Listen, Jesus stands before you and and offers you forgiveness and life and hope today. Man, will you repent of your sins, repent of your selfish living, living for yourself, and trust in Jesus today? See, friends, at the end of the day, the city of man is fading away. It is only temporary. In Jeremiah 29, though, it isn't some, some cheap and prosperity gospel promise about our 401Ks or a, or a mansion in this life or plans that God may have for you after college. All that's great. But listen, listen, Jeremiah 29, 11 is so much better. It's about a place that is awaiting you in the greatest city that there ever was, the city of God, if you turn and trust and believe in what Jesus has done for you. That is the promise <laughs> for exiles like me and you. Man, let me, let me close with this. You know, you know, there was this one time where, where Jesus, I mean, Matthew records this for us. You know, Jesus was, was walking in the city, and he, he stood up, and, and he looked down, and he saw, he saw the crowds. He, he looked out over the city of man, and the Bible tells us, Matthew tells us, that Jesus was moved with compassion. And that's encouraging for us. You know, the first reason why is because Jesus looks at you and me and Jesus looks at the cities we live in and, and he is full of love for you. He is full of compassion for you, not judgment. He is here to offer you grace today. Right? But the second thing we can take from that is, man, that should be an inspiration for us, shouldn't it? Man, we can, we can go and we can look out over the city of man. We can look out over the city of Tampa and we can be moved with compassion and say, man, how can I serve and how can I love my city? Would so you pray with me? Well, Father, I do thank you for these words Lord, you inspired to Jeremiah thousands of years ago, and thank you, God, that they still have such incredible relevance to our lives. And Father, I thank you ultimately that Jesus, your son, left heaven to come and live in exile, and even though he was rejected, he paid the price for our sins. He, he paid the price for us to be welcomed in, into your family, and God, we're so grateful for that. Lord, secondly, would you help us to live in light of that, to love our city, to love our neighbors. Lord, to love those people you have put around us and and the places you have strategically planted us in, God. Would you give us your heart for the city, a heart that does not just run from it or blend into it, but a heart that that seeks to see you transform and change the city from the inside out. God, would you use us, God, as your your co-laborers in this worthy task, I pray. In Jesus' name.